Hello and welcome to the Investors Chronicle Companies and Markets Show. I am John Human, editor of the Investors Chronicle, joined today by news editor Emma Powell. How are you doing, Emma? Very well, thank you. Excellent. And Julia for sure. How are you? Good, thanks, John. Excellent. So both of you have been enjoying the World Cup, I assume, unlike us English folk. <laughs> Good match last night. Well, yeah. no, bad match. Yeah, not bad so good match. match. Yeah, Being football, a Canadian, I can sit on the outside. Fo- football's not coming home. It's there, not, as it there, turns out. There you go. Never mind. Never mind. We got close, like the Welsh a few years back. In the Euros, yeah. That was very good. We share the pain now. It's been a mad week, an absolutely mad week in politics, on the markets, in the company news section. I mean, Trump's here. Everyone's gone mad. The cabinet has sort of fallen apart a little bit, back together. I haven't even looked at the white papers today, have you looked at it at all? I haven't, no. No, but uh, are we leaving the European Union? Are we leaving it in all but name? Are we, are we leaving it not at all and only in name? Who knows? We're not here to talk about that. We're going to talk about the news this week and the cover feature. So cover feature is Income Majors. It's about the, uh, the biggest dividend-paying companies on the stock market, and we're running the rule over them to, to see whether their dividend-paying uh, capability is likely to continue. Julia, you've covered... The two big fat companies. That's right. Uh, Imperial Brands was on it last year, but uh, British American Tobacco is a new entry this year. Yeah, I always thought that was a big dividend payout. I'm just surprised that it's a new it was, entry. It was always good, but it was this uh, purchase of Reynolds America, one of the biggest uh, M&A deals in history and the biggest in the tobacco sector ever. That was the catalyst that bumped it into income majors. So the sheer scale of its dividend has, has changed. That's uh, right. The sheer scale of the company as a whole. It's just, it, yeah, massive increase. Okay. In everything from profits to earnings per share. Yeah, we'll come on to the detail of that in a second. And Emma, you're going to be talking about the uh, the two banks that are in the list, which yeah. is HSBC Lloyds. And Lloyds is uh, was Lloyds in it last year? No, it wasn't. No, it wouldn't it have been, wasn't, would it? No, but now it's because if you if you account for kind of share buybacks and special dividends, it's now quite a sizable. Yeah. Yield. Indeed, chunky. We'll come on to income ages in a, in a second. Let's talk through uh, the two lead news stories. Uh, one, one, I think, is a company that investors, our readership, is likely to be probably a little bit more interested in than the other. But we'll start with the one that I think is a little bit more esoteric and, and, a, and a little bit less likely for, uh, for, for kind of average man on the street to be invested in. But it's important, nevertheless. TPI cap. Yes. Big uh, profit warning this week. Massive profit warning. Well, I think part of the reason the shares fell about a third in one day. And, and actually, the, the warning was is that EPS will just be slight for this year and next year. Um, it's just going to be slightly below the, uh, the guided range. But I think the reason the shares fell so much is because faith in management, I think, has, has, has been destroyed a bit. Um, basically, what happened was John Vazakli, he's been sacked and replaced by the global broking, uh, head of global broking. He came out to market, I think it was last year, and said he was going to be able to get £100 million annualised synergies uh, from, obviously, uh, what was Tullet Prebon's acquisition of ICAP's voice broking business. Mm-hmm. Turns out he can't, they can't. Um, and they've had to revise that down to £75 million. And obviously, the board just felt that he couldn't carry on leading the company after he had, up, he had upgraded to market. And obviously, it turned out that they just can't get the costs out of that deal. I mean, it's quite interesting. 
I look at companies like this and, you know, maybe it's that I don't do enough homework into them, but I find them really difficult to get to grips with. And, you know, this is kind of, this kind of sort of explains why even the management can't really see what's going on. If they, if they're promising one thing and not able to deliver it, Mm. they don't, you know, difficult businesses to manage, difficult businesses to invest in. Yeah, it is. They are difficult businesses to understand. I'd put Nex as as like the most similar, which obviously was ICAP as the most similar business. Yeah. I mean, TPI cap, so it's quite quite a high-yielding stock, and the dividend looks quite well-covered still. But yeah, they are basically inter-dealer brokers. They're brokering uh, deals between two, or trades between two sides that might not know each other and therefore trust each other. institutional Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's what they do. And they've got like a commodities business, and global broking is is the biggest bit in data analytics. But yeah, they, they are compared to just, you know, a bank or an asset manager. They are difficult companies to understand. Are they are they likely to be hit by Brexit? I mean, I noticed when in the piece that they they talk about Brexit preparations yeah. being a bit of a bit of a you know a financial burden. But well, nobody and they said as much. Uh, John Vazakli, as was then chief executive, said at the last results. We've got some operations in Europe, but basically we don't really know what's happening. Like, nobody does. <laughs> so yeah. we don't really know what's happening. So we're trying to come up with a contingency plan. I think what what's happened is actually they he was concentrating. They were concentrating so much, uh, my understanding is, so much on um, trying to get the costs out of this deal. They basically kind of dropped the ball on investing in other parts of the business and also on those kinds of preparations mifid 2 as well there's been a lot of regulatory change which well, mifid which haven't been, a, been concentrating on well that's been a nightmare for everybody yeah well. exactly but but brexit is another big one and i think the upshot of this i would say is i think there's going to be more warnings from them or from the sector well potentially from the sector but i think from them because obviously we've got this new guy in now and i can just imagine that the costs will be revised up i mean the the kind of cuts to um earnings forecasts go out to i think it was about 18 percent cut out to about 2020 by kind of analyst consensus forecasts so i think people are thinking that now you've got a new chief exec in he's going to be looking at things a lot differently and maybe pointing out okay costs are going to be higher here we need to they've, they've announced some investment in their businesses um they're quite low growth these these um well tpi cap certainly you know very low revenue growth so i can imagine there may be more kind of warnings to come mm, okay well i'll carry on avoiding that sector yeah. then. um julia let's talk i mean this is a management story as well. Slightly different type of management story. This is this is one of those board disputes that we see every now and then. Stobart's group. That's right. Lots going on behind the scenes. And I, and I think you know this is a company investors might might buy, might actually own because it, it was essentially a spin off of the Eddie Stobart Logistics. That's right. Group, yeah. and so people know it very well. Yeah, and you probably know London South End Airport too. No. It's something that's quite familiar. Know exactly what it does. Might have flown through it. Part of it anyway. It also has a big energy business too. But yeah. yeah. Kind of the what investors would know probably most obviously would be the airport. So there's kind of two stories here. One is the business itself, which which we think is doing very nicely, and you tipped it a few few yeah a couple of months ago. Months ago, um, and the other side is this this management upheaval, this turmoil, which kind of is, is sort of. Uh, it's really overshadowing the, 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 the massive progress this business is making. It is. The fundamentals of the business are still still doing extremely well. But behind the scenes, uh, former chief executive and the founder of Starbuck Group, actually, as well, uh, Andrew Tinkler, has been campaigning to have uh, the chairman, Ian Ferguson, removed uh, from his position. And he was wanting to have him replaced with uh, this retail entrepreneur called Philip Day. Okay. 
And finally, after lots of back and forth and lots of angry tweets and uh, letters sent to shareholders, uh, they had their AGM on Friday last week, but the result didn't actually come out until Saturday evening because it was such a close result that they had to recount it a few times. But Yeah, and so... Uh, as a result, Ian Ferguson has been re-elected, but at, uh, with 51.2% of shareholder support. Mm, so it's like another close vote that we uh, maybe had to think. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, but kind of in a twist of events, uh, Andrew Tinkler, he, had, he was a former chief executive, but has most recently been a director at the company. He stepped down and was replaced by Warwick Brady. But he was fired last month for a breach of contract and fiduciary duty because he was sending these letters to shareholders, which the board thought was out of line. And so normally he would have been up for re-election as a director. But since he got fired, that got uh, taken off the schedule. So this, I mean, this sounds personal. At the AGM, some shareholders on the floor put forward that he should be re-elected as a director. And he received 51.4% of support. So just marginally ahead of the votes that uh, Ian Ferguson received. So he's back on the board then? No, because then the, the board was just like, no, nah, I don't think so. We just fired the guy. Like, you can't then re-elect him again. So they struck it down. But so now Mr. Tinkler is uh, pursuing legal action against them. Okay, this is a convoluted, personal, acrimonious thing. Why is it happening? Because the business seems to be doing okay. I mean, it really is they don't, just don't like each other. Yeah, this has all kind of come into the public in the last couple of months, kind of the next last two or three months. But uh, when I was speaking to a representative for Mr. Tinkler, he says that this all has kind of stemmed back to about a year ago when Stobart Group was looking at potentially buying uh, the airline Flybe. And they had thought this was quite a good idea. They'd put together this funding vehicle, thought it was great. And Mr. Tinkler apparently disagreed with it, didn't think they should make the acquisition, didn't feel comfortable with the funding they were putting forward. And that deal eventually fell through. But you, you cover Flybe as well. Yes. So uh, did he have a point? I mean, that, that has I mean, Flybe chop- isn't one of our favourites. No, so no. It's not a cell, isn't it? A mini cell, I think. Yeah. 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 I mean, Flybe do use, I mean, they fly out of uh, Southend Airport. Uh, That's right. So and, they were kind of thinking uh, this would make sense because they're already based there. And uh, Stobart Group obviously owns Southend Airport. And they, but... do ha- they do have a sort of close working relationship. So Stobart mm-hmm. Air Logistics will, will provide some of the kind of operational aspects of, of Flybe's operation. So there, I mean, there is crossover. Yeah, there, I mean, it's, it's worth a discussion. But at the same time, yeah, we're at the ICE, we're not particularly big fans of Flybe. So well, there could be arguments made either way. But... Yeah, OK. And so this, so this comes down to a disagreement over strategy, essentially. Essentially, yeah. And because... Well, the board itself, that's kind of not the line that they're taking. What they're saying is that Mr. Tinkler is an excellent entrepreneur. He was great at kind of taking this small company, building it up to what it is today. And now they need someone in in the role who can really generate operating profit. And perhaps Mr. Tinkler isn't the right person for that. Okay. I mean, if you look at this company, however, I mean, it's, it's, it's a reasonably chunky company, but it is still at quite an early stage of, when you look at it, of, of, True. of you know, the potential growth is there. I mean, look at Southend Airport. That's right. Um, still lots, lots of growth opportunity to come t- from there. T- tiny airport, lots of land around it. Uh, not that many airlines flying out of it. I mean, it's. I think you've got Flybe and EasyJet and, and recently Ryanair. Yeah, Ryanair is the most recent one to come in. So, I mean, lots more they could do with it. So, I mean, you w- perhaps you still want someone who's entrepreneurial there. Perhaps you do. But I mean, what, what is it that, that we like about the shares? I mean, what, do we, are we looking for a, an entrepreneurial growth profile or, or, or do we think it's at that, that cusp of turning to something yeah. a bit more, you know, kind of blue chippy, as it were? 
Yeah, I think we still think that there's just huge growth opportunity to go. And uh, in all the recent updates, the fundamentals are still there. They're still on track to meet their two main goals, which is to have 5 million passengers a year through South End Airport by 2022 and having uh, supplying th- around 3 million tons of renewable energy by the same year. Mm. And so that's all completely on track. They offer a decent yield. Shares aren't looking too, too expensive. They've been quite volatile lately with the quite up quite a bit on the Ryanair deal announcement and then down quite a bit as the kind of management board so what are we, fighting. What are we saying? Buy on, the dip. buy on the dips then. Yeah, absolutely buy on the dips. Use them, use them still as a license. Still a great company. It's a shame what's going on behind the scenes, but the fundamentals are still there. Yeah, I like it. I like it as a customer as well. I, 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 I dread the prospects of 5 million customers going through there. I loved it. It was empty. Yeah, I've flown through it once before and it's just, it is delightfully small. It's so quick to get through. Yeah, so, you know, Stansted used to be like that. And look at it now. Mm-hmm. Oh, I have to go to Southend instead and it will, be, it will become the same eventually. Never mind. Okay, let's um, let's move on from the news. Let's let's talk income majors. As I said, we, we we do this. Well, we first did it last year. The idea was we we do lots of things about the FTSE 350. Generally, looking at sectors by sectors. Um, we do the AIM 100. We look at the biggest companies on the AIM, biggest companies on the smaller company market uh, on AIM. Um, but we don't really do anything that looks in detail at the very biggest companies on the stock market. Um, and the and the and most people buy these companies, these very very large companies, for the income they offer. So we're talking the shells and BPs and the banks and, and the cigarette companies and telcos. Um, and uh, yeah, it's, it's quite a useful exercise. Um, I, I, I think this is a, a really important feature because so many of our readers depend on this income in retirement. Should we start with the banks? Let's start with the banks. How is life for the banks? And, and not all the banks make this, this nope. list. Barclays doesn't, notably. No. RB, RBS hasn't yet returned to the no. dividend list. Um, Standard Chartered... Has, but just. Just. And it's meagre, to say the least. But we've got HSBC. Um, let's start with them. I mean, this, is a, this has been a solid, solid income-paying uh, company. Yeah, the, so HSBC was the only bank, actually, to make it um, in last year when, when we started this feature. Yeah, I mean, it's, it, it was, it's the only bank, um, you know, even when the financial crisis hit, that didn't, it cut its dividend, but it didn't go away with its dividend. Mm. Um, and it hasn't, it's it kept paying at its rates, which I think was 51 cents a share since 2009. I would say, you know, these companies are amongst the risky end of this feature series because, um, you know, for example, HSBC had to take massive loan impairments because it has big commodities exposure. Luckily, didn't have to cut the didn't have to cut the dividend. But I think what what is part of the reason they are so risky um, compared to maybe other other companies is the fact that returns have basically just been so hard to come by at the moment. Um, so, you know, where you might have companies that are backed by a very steady earning streams, that's not the banks. Yeah, I, I mean, there's an interesting uh, graph here, which I've not seen before, actually. I, I think this is fascinating that, that essentially the dividend tracks the the, uh, the forecast return on equity. Yeah, which is, which is uh, you know, Returns on equity for all sorts of reasons. You know, you were looking at early 20s percentages uh, prior to the financial crisis. Obviously, we know that that was basically achieved by taking risk that is now just not deemed acceptable. Now you're looking, I mean, I think HSBC has have got a target of about 10%. When interest rates got cut in 2016, they had to remove that timetable. Now they're just saying medium term uh, returns on equity of 10% pretty pathetic if you look historically but given rates are so low 
and the fact that they've got to hold a lot more capital um, on the balance sheets, it's just harder and harder to, uh, to to achieve decent returns on equity. And it's and it's very volatile as well, you know. Like part of the reason I, I mentioned that lack of steady inc- steady earnings backing the dividend, um, that's because yeah, you know, you have loan impairments, restructuring charges, misconduct charges. I mean, the list of one offs throughout the past decade has just been billions and billions of dollars. But but um, some of that, I mean, the misconduct charges have. Gone. They're, they're, they're in the past. I mean, they're not gone entirely, but yeah, the, the the bulk of that is in the past. Um, it, I mean, does it really matter that you know we're in a kind of low returns environment, given that the company is yielding five and a half percent, the shares are yielding five and a half percent? You know, we should we just get used to this kind of sort of low returns environment and 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 take take what we can, or are there risks that that actually we might it might get worse in the future? It's difficult to say. I mean, I I actually would say. The banks, the big banks, are in the best position they've been in from a capital position and potentially actually from a returns from a returns on equity generating position than they have been for the past decade. I think definitely. Um, and like you say, I guess the new normal is low interest rates, isn't it? I definitely think, I mean, with the banks, basically what you're looking at is what are their CET1 ratios and are they... Are they on target? Are they enough? Because that will basically determine whether you're going to get whether the dividend is going to get cut. Is the CET one ratio like you know stable enough? Is it growing? And actually, in HSBC's case and also Lloyd's, it is, and it's ahead of target. I think it's about fourteen percent target that HSBC have. They're ahead of that. That's basically you know we've seen during the past decade pre-tax profits have gone up and down and up and down and they are very volatile they've managed to keep the dividend paying out you know a nice dividend basically because they've managed to grow their CET1 ratio and some big share buybacks as well and some big share buybacks which are expected actually and it was interesting uh, they did a two billion dollar one earlier this year they announced that's probably going to be the only one though actually this year and the shares did fall on that, which I thought was a bit it was a bit overdone to be honest. Well, people because, expected more. But people just expect, yeah, they expect more than one share buyback. But, they, but that was another point actually. HSBC, uh, John Flint, the new CEO, said we're we're going to now just be investing a bit more in the company to try yeah. and kickstart growth. Yeah, I mean, you know, some of the things that, that would have hurt it in recent years, uh, you say exposure, you know, bad loan exposure. Yeah, they to, had a lot of toxic loans from. But, but some of the some of the areas it had, had exposure to that, that were behind that, you know, oil and gas extraction, particularly in North America, have, have improved with the oil price recently. Yeah, the, the yeah. prospects there look okay. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's that's that was just a risk point. I, I was saying, you know, mm. there is, you know, div, dividend cover, coverage is quite thin compared to some other companies, but yeah, you just just look at the capital ratios and. And they were that buy. is improving. And they're a buy. They Pretty are cool. a buy. Um, let's quickly touch on Lloyd's. It's a very different business. H- HSBC, much more of a global bank. Uh, Lloyd's, opposite very, mu- end, very much a UK lender. Yeah, the complete opposite. So Lloyd's didn't make it in last year, actually. Um, but they, yeah, they, they are literally the opposite end to HSBC. HSBC is, you know, the only universal bank left now. Lloyd's, very low risk. You know, quite a boring well, as boring as a big bank can be, but um, kind Bo- of vanilla. Boring. <laughs> vanilla. Uh, kind of, they basically concentrate on uh, UK retail banking. Um, so you'd think, hang on, it's going to be really hard for them to 
make decent returns on equity, they actually have upgraded, uh, last year upgraded their capital generation guidance. Um, I think what Lloyd's has done really well in comparison to Barclays and also RBS is they kind of got themselves back on track a lot sooner, despite obviously, you know, taking advantage of the government's bailout, managed to really just shrink their business, simplify it, took a lot of the one-offs. Okay, yeah, they still have been incurring quite hefty kind of PPI charges, but that should be behind it next year because the deadline's been set from the FCA there. Um, and yeah, I think it was, uh, was it 2000? Yeah, 2014 when they came back with that 0.75p um, dividend and it's just been growing ever since. And uh, they've, they've set management said they're going to do rather than kind of special dividends, which they've done the past few years, they're going to be doing share buyback. So and the government's stake is completely gone, gone completely now. So gone. They're, com- they're completely private again. Um, and, and again, they very well capitalised bank. Always has been, actually, for the past uh, few years. Has always been one of the most well-capitalised. Who's in charge now? Is it still Anthony, Antonio Hortensaro? Yep. Still? Yep. Still, yeah. Still. Wow. So that might that might explain some of the strong performance of this bank. Well, exactly, yeah. I mean, he's been there for, for a long time now, I think. He came, he came in after the... After the crunch, yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember he, he came in and he had to take he had to take time off. Such he did. He had a bit of, of a job. yeah. I mean, uh, that's not surprising, but yeah. But he's back. He's come back. You well, don't hear about, you don't hear about it much anymore. No, but I mean, and he's clearly good. I'd say that's good. Yeah, he's he's clearly a good chief exec because you compare. I mean, obviously, there's lots of historic problems with RBS, but you compare like RBS, Barclays, and Lloyd's, and Lloyd's is just the top. Yeah, I think. Yeah. yeah. Okay, that's a buy two then. Yeah, that's been quite a long-standing buy tip, actually. Yeah, it's. it's, it's still, I mean, the share price is still a bit. It's, it's, it's very. Yeah, it's very. Just it's. It kind of bobs around between kind of sixty and seventy p, but it is. It's it, it, that is an income buy. Yeah, one's half yeah. the long term. Yeah, 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 definitely. Excellent. Thank you, Emma. Uh, should we turn to tobacco? Or rather, not so much tobacco these days. It's still tobacco now. It's still, uh, for both uh, British American tobacco and imperial brands, the uh, sales from tobacco make up the vast majority of group sales. Yep. But it's slowly changing. Every year they're selling fewer and fewer cigarettes and more and more what they call next generation products, kind of the best known of which would be those vaporizer. Yeah, which, which around London you see everybody using now. Yeah. So, so fewer people smoking actual cigarettes than, than vapes, but I don't know if that's not true of the world as a whole. No, but in developed markets, it seems to be. Yeah, definitely going that way. That's um, right. So, so I mean, let's talk about these two companies. Uh, British American Tobacco, as you mentioned earlier, has really had a game-changing changing acquisition this year, Reynolds, which is a big American uh, tobacco company. That's right, yeah. 40, uh, £41.8 billion deal. So, yeah, it just fundamentally changed the business. Yeah, so, so I mean, we such was the scale of this deal that it kind of we it kind of messed the numbers up for a bit. We really... Yeah, it did. The, uh, <laughs> the, the last set of results, the, yeah, when you compare it to last year's, it just looks completely wonky, but for good reason. Yeah, I mean, tobacco is a dying product. Um, certainly, in, in, as you say, developed markets... Are the emerging market? I mean, the emerging markets from when I cover this company, particular, particularly British American tobacco, emerging markets were the big thing. It was still people buying cigarettes in Malaysia and Indonesia that were the big driver of this business. Is that still the case? It is, but probably not to the same extent that you would be thinking about it from years past. There's still growth opportunities there, but I mean, it doesn't seem to be as much of a focus as it was before. The okay. big focus now for uh, future growth and just current capex is 
how to develop these next generation products, how to kind of get into these new markets and make a product that people actually want to use instead of a traditional cigarette. So, so, so what sort of, um, we might as well talk about both companies because I know that they're, they're both investing heavily. What, mm. what, sort of, what sort of scale are these NGP next generation businesses so far in terms of the overall business of, of British American and, and Imperial? Yeah, for both of them, at the moment, they represent kind of low to mid single digits of uh, proportion of sales each year. So they're still very, very, very small. But like for British American tobacco, for example, uh, they're thinking that the it, they buy kind of like twenty thirty ish, so still quite a ways off. Mm-hmm. But they will probably be representing closer to like a third of sales by that point. Okay, so tobacco is still very important. Still very important, yeah. And every year they're selling fewer and fewer traditional cigarettes. But I mean, I, I kind of look at this and I and I think uh, I think of our own industry, you know, publishing, because obviously you know. Once upon a time, before the internet, everyone bought magazines and what a wonderful world it was to be a journalist. And then, of course, the internet came along and the, and the game was, well, you know, we, we'll switch our business models to the internet and it's essentially moving one thing into another channel. But it didn't really happen like that. No, I mean, it's... Are we, I mean, are we going to see the same sort of levels of disruption in this industry here? And, and on that basis, is this dividend really safe? Yeah, I mean, the whole argument just boils down to are consumers going to want to use these new next generation products because this whole you know health crazed new millennial generation aren't smoking cigarettes but will they want to instead have tobacco through or uh, nicotine through uh, inhaling a vaporizer instead yeah so if that plan does pan out then the dividend probably is safe but it it seems it seems like i mean this okay so i was kind of thinking out loud here people who smoke vaping or use vaping products are people who used to smoke cigarettes who are trying to give up smoking cigarettes and, and, and here is an alternative. If you've never smoked a cigarette and a lot of younger people haven't, why, why would you start smoking a vape? I don't know. Does it look cool? No. <laughs> <laughs> Not right now. I think the technology would have to... I mean, it looks like you've got some kind of like... Some kind of mouth organ or something. You know. <laughs> it's ridiculous, these things. But, but I, I don't know. I mean... These are the questions I would be asking of, yeah. of these kind of businesses. I mean, it's uh, arguably healthier because uh, a lot of these health organisations have said that it's the like the burnt parts of the cigarette that are the bit that's really, really bad for you. Yeah. And I guess in the nicotine itself is what's addictive. It's not those smoke particles. Yeah. So arguably, it could very well get a new generation addicted to a, a new product. Wow. What a great business model this is. Yeah, we're, <laughs> not, we're not here to be the studio, moral yeah. police on these vice stocks. But. I, mean, I, I, I was actually surprised uh, when I read the Imperial uh, write-up that, that they're actually looking at something that falls into the NGP category, which, which is not necessarily what you would think. Yeah, the, the, the cannabinoids market. That's right. They just bought a stake in this company called Oxford Cannabinoid Technologies, and they basically research medical marijuana and potential uses for it. I mean, this is this is this is potentially a huge industry. It is, yeah. It's becoming more and more legalized across the world. Canada, where I'm from, recently oh, legalized. You are, you lot it, alike. So. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, so that's another, perhaps more controversial than a traditional vaporizer, but yeah, so, another so, market that they could potentially be exploring as well. But Canada, I mean, Canada has has moved beyond the medicinal 
usage into recreational. Yeah. Legalising recreational Much usage. Much to of, the dismay of many there. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, I can imagine the, the same would happen here if, if it was tried. Um, I mean, there, there are debates happening. Um, and there, there was obviously a very big case recently where uh, a young child needed uh, cannabis-based medicine and could get it, and it's led to a number of debates in Parliament. But I could see this. I see this. Yeah, I get the, the vape thing. The vape thing. I'm not convinced about, but the medicinal side. This makes sense. I think. I mean, it would be much easier to argue, you know, if they have solid medical uses behind it, and it's now legal then, yeah, there's a huge potential market there. Whereas vaporizers, it's just a, a question of mm. will people get addicted to these like they did, like past generations did to cigarettes? Because it's still nicotine and it's still addictive. And if anything, it might be an even more efficient way of delivery. So Yeah, I mean, we, we, we've got this company on a buy. And I, I mean, I look at the share price there and, and, and it's actually a little bit different looking to, to British America, which has been a kind of steady downward trajectory for the last 12 months. We've, we've had a bit of a bounce here at Imperial. Yeah, it's coming up a little bit now. I what's think, what's uh, behind that? I think, well, for the case with British American tobacco, it's a bit more, especially after this Reynolds deal now, it's a bit more exposed to the US and the US, uh, the regulator, the FDA, is looking at limiting how much nicotine can be in uh, traditional cigarettes. Mm -hmm. And so because they're so much more exposed to that market than Imperial Brands is, I think that's why that share price has come off so much this year, especially because they just made a huge deal increasing their exposure to there. Yeah. Whereas Imperial Brands has kind of made a bit of a bounce. And uh, at the last set of results, the chief executive, Alison Cooper, was kind of, she didn't, she couldn't really give any details, but she was saying they're kind of looking at overhauling the portfolio and selling off some of these underperforming brands of different, she was saying products, but I think we can, it would be reasonable to assume that she's thinking traditional cigarettes because they've been quite vocal about saying that the future is in next generation products so they're kind of making quite big strides already to overhaul their portfolio to sort of start to get rid of these underperforming assets Mm. and use that money to partially pay down some debt and partially invest this in innovation in ngps who's who's a potential buyer then of of those uh those assets i mean is it it another of the big tobacco companies there aren't that many of them left are there yeah she was pretty tight-lipped about the whole thing and uh wouldn't say if any she lined up any buyers but this was just something that they were looking at and hoping to achieve in the next couple of years to kind of free up some money okay yeah potentially some of the other big tobacco organizations british american tobacco hasn't said anything about uh being an interested interested buyer but you never know what's going on behind the scenes okay so we're, we're still buyers of imperial and, yes, it's a buy and, tip. And Bats? Yeah, um, Imperial Brands is buy tip, and Bats is a mini buy. Mainly just, we, they obviously still offer great income, but we're just a bit more bearish on that exposure to the US until the FDA actually comes out with a solid decision. Okay, when, when do we expect to hear mm, something on that? Probably sometime in the next... I want to say before the end of this year, but it's it's kind of hard to say. Ah, slow moving world of regular of regulation. That's right. There you go. Thank you very much. Thank you, Julia. Okay, there's ten companies that we look at in this, that feature, as I say. So we've got the two banks, we've got the two cigarette companies. We look at the two big oil majors, and uh, who else we got? We got Vodafone, Glaxo, National Grid. National Grid, which is the only utility that makes it these days. It's a slightly different different beast. What else we've got in the magazine? We have John Rosier's diary this week. He's uh, basically talking about some uh, some some shares that have gone wrong and how he has responded to those the sector focus this week is on silver if i remember rightly lots in the results section including results from mercado which uh, sent the shares wildly down and then wildly up in the same day such is 
the, uh, the, the ease of which we could understand that company and its prospects. Um, we obviously discussed that on last week's podcast. Um, what else have we got? All the usual personal finance uh, and funds content, which they will be talking about on their podcast tomorrow. Uh, lots of comments. Simon Thompson, Bearball, uh, The Trader and Chris Dillo, as per usual. And uh, yeah, there's a little bit more in the news section, including an update on the, uh, the incredible, incredibly complicated Disney, Fox, Comcast, Sky merger battle. I understand that that one even less than I understand TPI cap at the moment. It's yeah, it's very difficult to understand. It's very convoluted. Megan's put some interesting diagrams together here, which which should help, help to explain it a little bit. That may come to an end at some point. It's been a long running saga, but if you've been a Sky shareholder, you've done extremely well out of it. There you go. Anyway, thank you for listening. Thank you again, Emma. Thank you, uh, Julia. Uh, pick up the magazine in all good news agents, income majors, the prospects for Britain's top dividend shares, and uh, we'll be back again next week. Thank you. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.